Now, when we come to this 27th chapter, we come to a chapter that we've labeled in our notes a chapter which the subject is friendship. And you'll note that as we go through here. We begin with, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. And this is something that is so familiar to us, but a great many people feel like, well, I'll wait till tomorrow to do it. It's what we call here near the border of Mexico, mañana, mañana, tomorrow. It is so easy to say that. And there is a Spanish proverb that goes like this, the road of by and by leads to the house of never. Manana means never. And we have one that puts it very bluntly. The way to hell is paved with good intentions. And the English have one that goes, Procrastination is the thief of time. And they would do it like that. But the Word of God puts it like this today. If you'll hear his voice, harden not your heart. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And the Scripture says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. And the tendency of man is to want to wait, you know. I'll do it tomorrow. I should do this tomorrow. And you remember when Paul talked to Festus? Paul was a prisoner, and yet he talked to Festus the ruler, the governor, about his soul's salvation. And he says, well, I'll hear you at a more convenient season. Well, as far as the Word of God is concerned, that never did come. You remember Pharaoh kept saying, I'll let the children of Israel go tomorrow, not today. Well, it cost him his oldest son, and therefore... Today is always the day of salvation. It's not something for you to wait for at all. Now, will you notice verse 2? Let another man praise thee and not thine own mouth, a stranger and not thine own lips. Let another praise you. Goliath is a good example of that. Walked up in front of Israel every day, flexed his muscles, told how great he was and what a bunch of cowards the Israel was. But he found out that didn't quite work. And then, verse 3, "...a stone is heavy and the sand weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than them both." If a fool's angry with you, you're in trouble. They'll say and do anything. Now, verse 4, "...wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before jealousy?" And you'll recall the Scripture says jealousy is as cruel as hell itself. And you remember what it did to Joseph. His brothers, because they were jealous, sold him into slavery. Now, verse 5, Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Now, I know that you have an example of that. That was the kiss of Judas. The kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And then you remember that Paul rebuked Simon Peter. And he said he needed it. And Peter never fell out with him over that. They were in entire agreement. And so it's wonderful to have a friend that will call attention to your faults and that sort of thing. 
And that's the reason a preacher needs a good wife that can keep him humble and tell him what's wrong with him. You know, sometimes I come from a service, I'm puffed up like a balloon. And then we get in the car, and my wife pushes a pin in the balloon. And I recognize that she's the one right, not the one that was flattering me at all. Well, it goes like that, does it not? Now, verse 7, "...the full soul tramples on a honeycomb, but to the hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet." And that's the reason that we have gourmet eating today, is to pamper many folk that have so much to eat that they have to have it fixed unusually nice and unusual things. They have to have hummingbirds' wings, you know, that will be served to them before they can really eat. That's the reason I think that cooking in European countries, England, France, Italy, and Spain, reach such a high degree of perfection because of the fact that the ruling class had plenty. And they got tired of just having tenderloin steaks, filet mignons every day, and ice cream with strawberries on them. And so they had to concoct the chefs in that day some very unusual and very tasty food. When you go to Europe, you can always keep that in mind. That's where it originated, but the hungry man. And that applies to the Word of God. This idea of eating and chewing and masticating the Word of God. Oh, may God give us an appetite for it, you see. Now, verse 8, So a bird that wandereth from her nest, so is a man that wandereth from his place. That is, there's so many folk in churches and in Christian work, they're like a round peg in a square hole or a square peg in a round hole. They just don't fit. And the reason is that God has given to every believer a gift. We've seen that when we were back in 1 Corinthians. But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. And God has given to everyone a gift, and we should get in that place and exercise that gift. We have examples of that in the New Testament, of those that apparently didn't exercise gift. Paul spoke of a man by the name of Demas. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. He went back into the world. Apparently never did fit in, you see. Now, verse 9, "...ointment and perfume rejoice the heart. So doth the sweetness of a man's friend by hearty counsel. Thine own friend and thy father's friend forsake not, and go not into thy brother's house in the day of thy calamity. For better is a friend that's near than a brother far off." I've always felt that this is a California proverb. When I first came to California, the thing that shocked me were the few people that were at funerals. Because I'd come from Texas, when they have a funeral down there, they come from far and near. The largest crowds I ever had in Texas were at funerals. And I come to California, and I never shall forget, a dear saint of God died. She'd lived alone, but she was a wonderful person. Well, I thought the place would be crowded. I think there were 15 people there. It's better to have a friend near than a brother far off. You see, she'd come from back east. 
She'd brought her husband out here in early days because he was sick, and the doctor told him to take him west. And she'd come out here, and she'd had to spend time taking care of him, and then he died, and then she was left alone. She never went back. She was active in the church to a certain extent, but, you know, she just never did have too many friends. But It's better to have a friend that's near than a brother way back east, you see, and that's where her friends were. Now, verse 12, "...a prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple passed on and are punished." Now, this is one that we've had before, and I'd like to add to it that I think one of the great benefits of the study of prophecy is that we know what's coming. Very frankly, if I had to look to man to solve the problems of this world, I'd be very discouraged. I'd be a real pessimist. I don't think man has a solution. I think that we're moving to a crisis and a catastrophe. I don't think there's any question about that. And it's foolish for any man to think that he can solve the problems of the world. But the Word of God makes it clear that this is the thing that was to come to pass. So we need to recognize that. Then there is another thought in connection with this that's very important. And I put it in my notes in a very brief way, very terse language, two words, buy insurance. The Lord intends for you to make plans for the future. A prudent man, he foreseeth the evil, he hideth himself. He prepares for the day that is coming. This idea that a man ought not to prepare for retirement, ought not to have insurance and that type of thing. And the foolish answer given is, well, you ought to trust the Lord. Well, the Lord's provided these things for us, friends, and we should avail ourselves of them. Now, verse 14, "...he that blesseth his friend with a loud voice rising early in the morning, it shall be counted a curse to him." You know that there's a great deal of irony in this statement here. There are those that make such loud protestations of love and affection. And you always know that there's a motive back of it. He that's praising you more than you ought to be praised, you watch out for him. You remember Absalom listened to the men of Israel, that group of the young jet set that praised him, told him he ought to be king, Instead of his father, he shouldn't have listened to all of that praise. And the unfortunate thing, I always say this to young preachers when I'm speaking in seminaries. You know, I say, young man, it doesn't make any difference what church you go to. There'll always be a dear little saint in that church, generally a dear little lady, sometimes it's a man, that's going to tell you what a wonderful preacher you are. And the Lord puts them there to encourage a young preacher. And I said, why, that dear person's going to tell you that you're the greatest preacher that they've ever heard. They're going to tell you that you're another Paul the Apostle, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Billy Sunday, and Billy Graham all wrapped into one individual, and that you are it. Now, I said, it's wonderful that they're there. It's wonderful that you're going to hear it. But I said, don't believe it. It's not true. This business of flattering, (laughs) you need to be careful of it. Now, verse 15 and 16, a continual dropping 
in a very rainy day, and a contentious woman are alike. Whosoever hideth her hideth the wind, and the ointment of his right hand which betrayeth itself. Here we are back again to this. This is the third time. And the continual dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. I won't make any more comments today. Verse 17, As iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. It's wonderful to have a friend that you can sit down with and sharpen your mind with him. That is, you can discuss certain things. I used to have a very wonderful friend that I'd go to him and we'd sit down and talk about spiritual matters. And I always came away refreshed and strengthened, and I'd always learn something also. Wonderful to have a friend like that. Now, there's so many other wonderful Proverbs here that we'd like to dwell with, but I'm going to move down now and hit some high points. I'm dropping down to verse 19. As in water, face answereth to faith, so the heart of man to man. Wonderful to have a friend that you can just open your heart to him, and you know he'll not betray you at all. This is a great chapter on friendship, you see. Wonderful to have a friend like that. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. That's verse 20. You never see enough, do you? (laughs) You just want to keep seeing. That's the reason some of us love to travel around the world. We want to see. The eyes of man are never satisfied. Verse 21, As the fining pot for silver, and the furnace for gold, so is a man to his praise. And you better be careful of it and make sure that it has the right effect upon you. Then verse 24, For riches are not forever, and that is something that in this materialistic age we need to recognize. For riches are not forever. You don't take them with you. The old bromide, there's not a pocket in the shroud. You can't take it with you. When the original Vanderbilt was dying, all the relatives were waiting outside. And the thing they were interested in when he did die, the lawyer came out, They said, how much did he leave? And the lawyer said he left every bit of it. He didn't take anything with him. For riches are not forever, and doth the crown endure to every generation. And don't depend on man, because man will fail you. Only God's the one we can depend upon. He is the only one. This has been a great chapter on friendship, you see. That's been the emphasis here. Now we're back at the 28th chapter of the book of Proverbs. We come to verse 1 here, and it reads like this, "...the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion." Sin, regardless of the viewpoint of man toward it, always puts folk in a continual fear. And they live in a time of where they condemn themselves. There is a self-condemnation. I was very much interested in speaking out here on the West Coast to a group. And in it, there was a young fellow and a girl who were living together. 
And I never even mentioned anything about that and the way that the young man, because I actually was talking about sin and sin in general, the way he began to defend himself was almost amusing if it hadn't have been so serious. He began to defend what he's doing. That's the way we found out that he was living, and he was living in sin. But he didn't think so, but he had a conscience that somehow or another wanted him to defend himself. The lawless flee when no man pursue it. Nobody pointed the finger at the young man. To begin with, I didn't know and certainly didn't have him in mind and didn't mention his sin. But he felt, nonetheless, it's there. The righteous are bold as a lion. And if a man is not guilty, believe me, he can speak out. If he's not guilty, it's when he is guilty. Always you have this in the thoughts and minds of men. There is a psychological term that is used, a guilt complex. All of us have the guilt complex. And as a psychologist told me, and he's a Christian psychologist, he taught years ago at USC here in Southern California. He said, you know, I was speaking one night and mentioned the guilt complex at our Thursday night Bible study. He said to me afterwards, said, you should bear down on that. You didn't emphasize it enough. Why, he said, do you know that guilt complex is as much a part of you as your right arm? And you can't get rid of it just by wishful thinking. And many attempt to do. And then he made this interesting statement. He said, we psychologists can shift it from one place to another, but you can't eliminate it. And today, one of the methods that the godless psychologist uses is to a person that they say your religion is giving you a guilt complex. Now the thing to do is to go out and go to the bar room and pick up with one of the opposite sex. Well, why do they say that? Well, they say that because that's wrong. <laughs> that's the reason they say it. I never heard of one of those psychologists saying, now make sure and eat dinner tonight, and be sure and sleep tonight. They don't do that. They say the other thing. Why? Because that thing, that awful thing, is in the hearts of all of us, the guilt complex. Now, let me drop on down. I'm going to hit high points from now on, and I come down to verse 9. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law... Now, that means the Word of God here, because... Everything that had been written up to the time of Solomon was called the law. The book of Joshua was included. The book of Judges was included. And that was about it. And, of course, many of the Psalms of David were already being used. And so it's called the law at that time. Now, he that turneth away his ear from hearing the word of God, even his prayer shall be an abomination. Now, the thing that God is saying is this. If you want God to hear you, you hear him first. And he's made it very clear that he doesn't listen to the prayer of the godless man. That is just sentimental twaddle today that people talk about the godless man. At the time trouble comes to him, his little daughter's sick, and he can go in a sentimental way and call upon God to raise her up. Now, may I say to you, I would suggest he call in a godly friend to pray for the little girl. And I certainly hope the Lord will raise her up. But God's not going to hear his prayer. 
because God says he won't. And over in 1 Peter 3, 12, "...for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil." God's made it very clear where he stands. And he even says here that that prayer is an abomination to him. Why? It's actually sin. It really turns out. Now, he says here, I'm dropping down now to verse 10. Whoso causeth the righteous to go astray in an evil way, he shall fall himself into his own pit. But the upright shall have good things in possession." Now, this is a law of God that's operative in this world. And you can find that as you go through the Word of God. You can find again and again and again an example of that. Take the life of David. And the thing that he did brought scandal into his own family and his own home. Now, I'm moving on down to verse 11. The rich man is wise in his own eyes. One of the things about the rich is that riches will minister to pride and conceit. It's something that seems to go along with it. And today you hear of some rich man giving a testimony at a banquet, especially a prominent banquet. But did you ever hear of just a poor, simple, ordinary fellow giving a testimony? You hear of the great men of this world that give a testimony at the president's prayer breakfast. My, but did you ever hear them just reaching down and getting some poor little vegetable variety of a Christian, let him give a testimony? But you notice what God says? The rich man is wise in his own eyes, but the poor that hath understanding searcheth him out. That poor man and may be poor in this world's goods, the poor of this world, but rich in faith. And that poor man can listen to the testimony of the rich and know that it's as hollow, it's a sham, and that it lacks reality. And even if it is real, it will lack the ring of discernment and of understanding of spiritual things. I have been to those banquets when they've called upon some prominent businessman to give a testimony, and he gets up and says things. Actually, you'd see several people who have real spiritual discernment bowing their heads in embarrassment at the thing that he's saying. And that happens sometimes in a so-called Hollywood convert. Boy, this is a good proverb, by the way, one that's generally passed over. Now, verse 13, "...he that covereth his sins shall not prosper." But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. This is a great one. If you try as a Christian, try to cover your sins. And that, by the way, is the common practice among Christians today. You find in the average church that there's a band-aid of silence placed over the cancer of sin. They don't like to talk about, you know, they try to appear to each other that they're perfect, which means that they think that they're very good. But we're told here, he that confesseth and forsaketh them, he shall have mercy. And for the believer today, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us all in righteousness. 
Now, I don't mean public confession of sin. This is a matter between you and the Lord. But that should be dealt with. And this idea today to try to appear that you're sinless before your little group is, I think, a big mistake. Whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall obtain mercy. How wonderful this is. Now in verse 14, "...happy is the man that feareth always, but he that hardeneth his heart shall fall into mischief." Now, this is another very wonderful proverb. And this is what it means to walk in fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what does that mean? Well, it means that your heart is open toward God all the time. The opposite here is, "...he that hardeneth his heart shall fall into mischief." The man that fears God is one that is listening to God, one that's trying to walk in a way that's well-pleasing to him, walking in humility before the Lord, walking in recognition of his weakness and of his utter dependence upon God. Now, that's what it means. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But now, I must pause and say something here at this particular point. I've had several letters from friends. One dear lady wrote and said, I'm writing you this in love. You have pointed out the faults of the church members, and you have given the criticism of the Christians that are in our churches today. But says, don't you have a word of encouragement for them? Now, my friend, may I say that I'm attempting to teach the Word of God. I believe that we're in days of apostasy today. And the ones that are the quickest to acknowledge the present-day apostasy are pastors of churches. And there is a sad condition. Now, I recognize we need encouragement. But when I give encouragement, I'm giving it from the Word of God to all saints. Now, I don't call attention necessarily to the church. But I call attention to the local church when the Word of God makes it very clear that he's speaking about these that are making a profession today of being a Christian. And I think to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And a great many people in the church and out of the church are tremendously discouraged at what they're seeing in the lives of some Christians. And as a result, why, they are turning off. Religion is one young man, one of these hippie-type individuals. He said to me, I've turned off religion. Well, I know something of the boy's background. And I almost felt like saying to him, well, I agree with you, but I can't say that to the young man. I tried to point out to him that there are a lot of wonderful saints today that are in the church. And they're generally in the background, not always, but generally And these are folk that you can have a wonderful fellowship with and you can have confidence in them. Now, I'll pause to say that because that fits right along in what we are having here. The writer of the Proverbs didn't spare any of us. You may be sure of that. And many of these Proverbs fit down on us just like a garment. Now, we find in verse 17, "...a man laden with the blood of any person shall flee to the pit." Let no man stand. In other words, a man that is consciously guilty of having committed 
a horrible crime, he has to bear on the conscience a fearful load that'll finally drive a man to suicide. And there's so many cases like that today, and I suppose the prime case is that of Judas Iscariot himself as being the one finally driven to suicide because of the awful, dastardly crime that he had committed. And so many crimes today. An FBI man told me this. He said, you know, sometimes a crime will go for several years. We have no inkling at all of evidence of being able to trace it. And finally, here pops up a man or even a woman sometimes over here, and they have to talk, and they make a statement. And sometimes they're in prison on another crime, and they confess one that he says that we're still working on. Why? Because it's on the mind and heart of an individual, my friend. You can't escape that. God made you that way, hoping that that might bring you back to him. Now, verse 24, "...whoso robbeth his father his mother, and saith it's no transgression, the same is the companion of a destroyer." Now, a man might say, Well, after all, I'm going to inherit what my dad's got, so I'll just take it from him now. Well, that's a crime in God's sight. And by the way, you remember, that was the thing that the Lord Jesus rebuked the religious rulers for in that day because they had made a tradition that if a man just said Corban, it didn't make any difference if he ignored his parents, you see. Well, you see, so easy because of a relationship to deny support or to take something that does not belong to you. And that is the thing that our Lord condemned. Now, that brings us to chapter 29, and it opens with a tremendous verse here. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. God has so many ways of reproving a man, and he can keep going on in sin. I think of the fact that so many folk that, in my experience, were warned before judgment fell upon them, and it falls upon them in this life. I was walking down the street one night with a friend in Dallas, Texas. A big crowd was gathered around out in front of a theater. When we walked by we noticed that there was a wrecked automobile there. And we stopped to look at the wrecked automobile. And believe me, it was really in a sad condition. So when I got back to the seminary, I was telling several of the students about it. And one fellow says, do you want to know the story of that car? And I said, yes. And he told me that it was driven by a high school student and his girlfriend. And they had stopped by to pick up a girl that was going to a Bible class. And she said, no, I can't go with you tonight. Well, they said, get your date and go with us. Said, no. Said, I'm going over here to Bible class, and I'd like for you to go. And they said, we'll take you, but we're not going. So they took this girl over, and her boyfriend was already over at the Bible class. And so on the way over, she presented Christ to them, said, you know, I accepted Christ at this Bible class, and you need it. And they just laughed. They let the girl out at the Bible class. And in five minutes after they did that, speeding down a street, a car came out, hit them, and killed both of them instantly. 
He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed that without remedy. Korah in the Bible is an example of that. And Dathan and Abiram and Belshazzar and Jezebel. All of these are examples of that in the Word of God. And the Word of God is filled with that sort of thing. Now we have in verse 4. Well, let me take verse 2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. And we've had a verse where it speaks of the fact that when the wicked are in power, and a group of them, why, they never solve the problems. But one righteous man is able to bring blessing to a nation. And that's what we need in this nation of ours above everything else. We don't need men today that say they've got solutions for every problem because we know that anybody that says he's got a solution for the problems of this world, he has to say it with a tongue in his cheek. What we need today are righteous men who will stand for the right at any price. And I believe that just one of them is better than a whole party, regardless of what party it might be. This is a wonderful proverb. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Verse 4, The king by judgment established the land, but he that receiveth gifts overthroweth. You know, David made this statement. It was in one of his Psalms, a righteous ruler over man, a ruler in the fear of God. And this man, he had acknowledged in his own confession, my house is not so. Only Christ is the king who by judgment will establish the land. The king by judgment establisheth the land. And that's the reason that the coming of Christ to the earth is the only hope that the world has today. And thank the Lord, the church is going to leave before he comes to the earth. That is the promise that he's given. And this matter of giving gifts, my, how that is figured in politics today. And that has no respect of parties either. Verse 5 and it reads, A man that flattereth his neighbor spreadeth a net for his feet. I think that there are times when praise and applause for a man that's doing a good job is certainly an order, and merit should be recognized, of course, and it's always proper. And I'm not sure but what there's a time to stand up and cheer for an individual. But when flattery is used, it is like the overdose of honey that we've been reading about in the book of Psalms. And there are some folk that you know, the very minute they begin to speak to you, they're flattering you. They're not really telling you the thing that's upon their heart. When I was a pastor, I had a man that was always making certain requests of you and asking certain favors and when he would call on the phone, I always knew the minute my secretary said he was on the phone, I knew he wanted something. And he always began the same way. And it went something like this. Oh, Dr. McGee, I was listening to you 
this past week on the radio. And I want to tell you, I never heard a message like that. I hope you're putting that message into print. Well, you know, the minute he started talking like that, I knew he was after something. And the more flattering the things he said, it was the bigger favor that he was going to ask for. Flattery is a dangerous thing because sometimes people believe it. And it's tragic when we believe flattery. Now, we have here, and I'm dropping down now to verse 10. It says, "...man of blood hate the perfect, but the just seek or care for his soul." Let me give it as we have it now in our authorized version. "...the bloodthirsty hate the upright, but the just seek his soul." This means a bloodthirsty man, a man that has murder and hate in his heart. And the Lord Jesus said that if you hate your brother, well, you're guilty of murder. And Cain was guilty of murder, you see. And it was in his heart. And if you want to know how far man has fallen and how quickly he can fall, remember that God had created Adam and Eve, created them perfect. And now Adam and Eve fell. And the only thing they can bring into the world is a sinner. They brought forth in their likeness sons and daughters. Well, Cain was one of them. And here this boy is born with murder in his heart. He hates his brother. What a picture. Then we have verse 11. A fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth it back. A fool, you talk with him, he'll tell you everything. But a wise man will hold back. He'll be very careful of what he's going to say. Verse 12, If a ruler hearken to lies, all his servants are lawless. And that's the reason that, and we've had this before, that child that will steal from the parents, which simply means this, that the parent ought to always punish a child for taking anything that doesn't belong to him, even from the parent. Why? Because the child will imitate that. And that's true of any man in a high position. His conduct will be reflected in those that are underneath him. And that is the picture that you have. Now, I want to drop down to verse 17. Correct thy son, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. And this follows in that connection. And then verse 18, Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Now, we've had that before. But the thing that's interesting here, we have this statement, Where there is no vision... The people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. And the thing that's important here, a vision means actually spiritual understanding, or actually the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer to give him understanding of the Word of God. We're told that in 1 Samuel 3, 1, the Word of the Lord was precious in those days, there was no open vision. Well, the word of the Lord was precious. That is, there was no understanding of the word of God, and for it was precious 
in those days. Now, God raised up Samuel, a seer, to meet that, you know. And you remember that even Moses could say, Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, that is, had an understanding of the Word of God. I personally think a spiritual discernment is one of the gifts that God has given to the church, by the way. Now, I'm going to pass over many of these Proverbs. Actually, they've been before us, couched in a little different language, before. Now, this chapter actually concludes the collection of Proverbs that were copied out and collected by the man of Hezekiah. And now we have actually all the Proverbs that are really attributed to Solomon. However, I believe the last chapter, which we'll come to, was written by Solomon himself. Now, in chapter 30, we come to the words of Agur. We're told here the words of Agur, the son of Jakey, the prophecy that man spake unto Ithiel, even unto Ithiel and Eucal. I don't know those brethren, but this is from an unknown seer, an unknown writer. And the interesting thing here is that these proper names here are like all Hebrew names. They have been translated by some as just common nouns because they do mean something. And it would be the words of a gatherer, the son of the pious. And that could be the translation. However, I don't think that that would be it at all. And verse 4 is a very interesting verse. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? who hath established all the ends of the earth. What is his name? And what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. Now, this is a question. You remember that God asks Job the question. Who's able to answer these questions? Well, the Lord Jesus said, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Now, that's my reason for saying constantly that the Lord Jesus is the only authority on this matter of creation, the matter of origins of the universe. Now, I very candidly believe that none of us have the correct explanation. I don't think science has. In fact, the very matter that they've come up with evolution means they do not have the answer to origin. And the reason that we've spent so much money to go to the moon was to get rocks that we might find out about the origin of the universe. Now, there are those that take the first verse of Genesis, and they say, this is it. I say, that's it too. But then they take the next verse, and they say, well, this tells about the creation. My friend, I don't think God told you about the creation. I believe in the gap theory myself. I'm old-fashioned. I'm a real square. And I believe that in spite of what these new books, these new sharp, clever young men that are writing today, I just don't believe that God has let you in on it, friends. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? When did you make the trip, brother? 
that gave you all this new information and light. I don't care whether you're a scientist or a theologian. You don't know. And I'd like to make that emphatic. You don't know. And God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? So you don't have the answer at all. And I like the expression here, who gathered up the wind in his fist? Just think, God holds the wind just like you would hold an article of some kind in your hand. What a picture. And man knows very little about these things. In that same passage where the Lord Jesus said he was the one that came down from heaven, he also said, the wind bloweth where it listed. You hear the sound now. You canst not tell where it comes, where it's going. This is a tremendous verse. Now, we have some marvelous verses here, and I can only just mention them in passing. It says, verse 5, every word of God is pure. Nothing will clean you up like that. Every word of God is pure. It's not just 99 and 44, 100% pure. This is not ivory soap. It's better than ivory soap. It's a miracle cleanser. Every word of God's pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. God doesn't mind calling you a liar, but you better not call him one. And then we have here, Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. And that means this. I don't want to live among those that are vain and are flattering and those that are lying. It's like living in a rattlesnake den to live with folk like that. And then he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Give me a good diet. Let me take the middle of the road. And don't be an extremist either way. Then he says, There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes, and yet's not washed from their filthiness. And now I know there are folk that will say, very frankly, there are a lot of church members like that. They are a generation, they're all alike, that take the position that they are pure in their own eyes. They don't need a Savior. They're just religious. And then there are those today that are high up in business. They feel the same way. And there's many a down-and-outer that even then he feels that he's all right in his own eyes. But he's not washed. None of these are washed, and they can only be washed by the blood of Christ. And then down verse 15, we have another wonderful statement. The horse leash hath two daughters crying, Give, give. Have you ever ridden horseback? You have two reins, and you have to hold back on those reins because constantly each one of them is saying, Give, give, let go, let me run. But you better hold up on the reins or you'll have a runaway horse. And that is something that today in life, my friend, self-control, holding back. And you remember David had said, don't be like the mule or the horse that has to have a bit in its mouth to hold it back and to guide it. Turn this matter over to the Lord. Then he says, there are three things that are never satisfied. Yea, four things say not. It's enough. There are four things that never satisfy, never have enough. 
First is the grave. And you and I are living in a funeral procession today. All of us are in a funeral procession. It began outside the Garden of Eden with Abel. And it's been coming down through the centuries. And as we said the other day, this old world we live on is a great big cemetery. That's what it is, where people are buried. The grave, never satisfied. And the barren womb. Oh, there's so many women that can't have children for one reason or another. And they're the ones, I think, that make such wonderful mothers of adopted children. <laughs> and they're never satisfied. They want that little precious one to put its little chubby hands around the neck and somebody to call him mother. <laughs> and the same way about father. And then the earth that is not filled with water. We don't ever get enough rain out here in California. We need more rain. Actually, out here we have too much fire and not enough rain. This is the thing. Too little rain in California and too much fire. That's our picture. And then, and the fire that saith not, it's enough. I wonder when we're going to burn off all of the mountains of California. I thought we'd run out of mountains long time ago, but apparently we haven't. These are four things that are never satisfied. Tremendous statement, is it not? Now, we have here verse 17, "...the eye that mocketh at his father despiseth to obey his mother. The ravens of the valley shall pick it out, and the young eagles shall eat it." Tremendous judgments are pronounced against those who turn against father and mother. God have mercy on the young man today that's turned away from his father and mother if they're believers in Christ. And I trust set the right example. Verse 18, "...there be three things which are too wonderful for me, yea, four which I know not." And since the writer here, Agur, didn't know, I don't guess I know either, so I can just mention them and pass on. Will you notice? He says here, "...the way of an eagle in the air." You ever see an eagle flying in the air? I don't quite understand it myself. The way of a serpent upon a rock. You ever see a serpent on a rock? And the way of a ship in the midst of the sea. Always been a mystery to me how I went across the Atlantic in the Queen Mary years ago, of course, and I just wondered how that great ship made of iron could float. The way of a ship in the midst of the sea. And then the last one, it's a wonderful the way of a man with a maid. <laughs> Have you ever noticed these young folk, even today, where we hear so much about sex? When you see one of these young fellows about 14 years old meets a girl, have you ever noticed how awkward the boy is, how embarrassed both of them are? The little thing that happens. I remember when I was a very young man. Actually, it was my first date that I had. And it was back before I was saved. I have a notion I was about 14. Because I started early. I didn't want to miss anything. And we were going to a movie. I was taking this girl to a movie and walking down the street. Years ago, men used to wear garters to hold their socks up. Well, mine came loose and it was dragging. Oh, 
My, you talk about embarrassed. I never was so embarrassed in my life. And I didn't have sense enough to just stop and step up to the side and by a store window up an alleyway. I just went down the street dragging there. And I never shall forget. I had a crowd after a while, and that made it even worse. And the girl got red in the face, and I got red in the face. And I don't think we said anything for a couple of hours after that happened. The way of a man with a maid. It's quite unusual, isn't it? Four things that he said he didn't understand. I still don't think I understand them. Verse 20. I'll move rather rapidly through this section. It says, "...such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth, and saith, I have done no wickedness." Now, we're living in a day when this actually has come to pass, that there are those living in sin, and they'll argue with you that they are not living in sin. I understand one child born out of wedlock was given a name that I'm not sure just what it was, but it meant purity, and it meant the little child was pure. Well, to begin with, the child has a sinful nature. I don't care if they've been married a half a dozen times to each other and how many ceremonies they'd have. But there's one thing for sure, that it is to try to say that adultery is not a sin. God still says it's a sin, and he hasn't changed his mind. He didn't learn anything from this generation And more and more, as I see the sin about me, I'm convinced that God didn't need to learn anything from this generation. He already knew all about them, wrote about them here. Now, verse 21, "...for three things the earth is disquieted, and for four which it cannot bear, for a servant when he reigneth." That's Jeroboam. He was a servant, became the first king in the northern kingdom and a fool when he's filled with meat. And that was that rich fool that built bigger barns, and then he was eating gourmet, of course, with barns like that. But he was a fool, and he was filled with meat. And then the third thing, for an odious woman when she's married. And a great deal could be said about that, but I've said, I guess, too much already and a handmaid that is heir to her mistress. That is, sometimes a poor person, very poor, been walked on, suddenly becomes rich. There's no one that is as overbearing as a person like that. Now, we come to the zoo. We're going to visit. There be four things which are little upon the earth, but they are exceeding wise. Now, God says we can learn from the animal world. And there's some very interesting animals. The first are a little folk, just little bitty animals. In fact, first is an ant. And there are two groups here. The first group shows the way to God for the sinner and these little ones. And then the second group, the walk of the saint before God. Now, notice it says here in verse 24, "...there be four things which are little upon the earth." but they're exceeding wise. Verse 25, "...the ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer." I was noticing here the other day a red ant hill. I hadn't noticed one here in California. 
I used to see them constantly in Texas, and I didn't realize they had been able to get to California, but they've come out here also. I guess they like the climate. And there was quite an anthill. And as I looked at it, I thought of this proverb here, the answer of people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. Now, they're wise, and we can learn from them. And we've already had something about the ant back in Proverbs 6, 6. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider a ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. Now, ants do gather grain. They do it in Texas and they do it in Palestine. I've seen one of these little ants carrying a grain of wheat or oats bigger than the ant but was carrying it right along. We hear the expression, busy as an ant, or busy as a bee. And what are they doing? Well, they store up and stash away foods during brief and bright days of harvest. And the very interesting thing is, the ant is an example to us of wisdom in preparing for the future and material things. Somebody says Christians ought not to have insurance and they ought to trust the Lord. My friend, I think you ought to have the social security since it's available. You ought to have insurance. You ought to save your money. You ought to buy a home. Sure, make a will, provide for your loved ones for the future. Certainly you're to do this. If you don't believe it, go look at the little ain. He's taking out insurance on all those things. But it also has another message. There are so many people make no arrangements beyond death. Oh, they even go to the undertaker and arrange for that. You heard about the undertaker that had a layaway plan, pay now and go later. He had reversed it, of course. And maybe you ought to do that. I've never felt like I should go quite that far. But the thing is, what about after death? Only for a few fleeting moments of time are we here. And there's no preparation for the endless ages of eternity. Care for the physical body and neglect of the soul. It's said that that wicked emperor of Rome by name of Hadrian, when he was dying, he made this statement. He says, No more crown for this head. No more beauty for these eyes. No more music for these ears. And no more food for this stomach of mine. But my soul... Oh, my soul, what's to become of you? And it's so sure, it's appointed under man wants to die and after death the judgment. And you can live for this life only, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. You can build bigger barns. But my friend, there's a day coming, and God says, flee from the wrath to come. Prepare to meet thy God, and while it's called today, now, that's the first little insect we visit. Now, the second, verse 26, "...the conies are but a feeble folk, yet make their houses in the rock." Now, the conies actually are not the rabbit. The biological name is Hyrax syracus. They have long hair, short tail, round ears. They are feeble and defenseless. They're not able to burrow in the ground. Very frankly, they're poor, they're helpless little creature, and they're said to be very unclean. And they hide in rocks, and they find there a place of safety. 
And man, look at that little animal and learn something. We're poor. We're helpless. We're unclean sinners. And we need to recognize our pitiful plight. But we can flee to the rock. And we're told that. Oh, then to the rock let me fly. That's what the hymn has. To the rock that is higher than I. Oh, then to the rock let me fly to the rock that is higher than I. That rock, I think we know, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The rock was Christ. You don't guess what that is. Now we have here in verse 27, "...the locusts have no king, yet go they forth all of them by bands." The locusts. It's a creature of destruction. Joel had a great deal to say about the locust plagues. You have it in the book of Revelation. They're great numbers. They break down trees. They have no leaders. When we were in Palestine, they were having not really what would be called an epidemic of them, but there were quite a few of them. It was not even be called a plague of them. But there were quite a few up around the Sea of Galilee. And I tell you, they were doing a good job of destroying everything in their way. They are a creature of destruction. Now, will you notice here, the locusts have no king. Now, today we have one. Christ is the unseen head of the church. We are warned, Paul said to the Corinthians, "...for ye are yet carnal, whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions. Are ye not carnal? You walk as man." And we are today to walk as those that have Christ as our head. That locust of creature destruction can teach us to walk looking to our leader. They have none. Now, we have the fourth here is the spider. In verse 28, it says, "...the spider taketh hold with her hands and is in king's palaces." Now, this is the gecko in Hebrew. It's actually a little lizard. And Dalich says the lizard... Thou canst catch with the hand, and yet it is in king's palaces. Somehow or another, it works its way in the houses, and it has an affinity for fine tapestry. And it has fan-like feet, and they have a sticky substance on it, and exudes an ooze, and it can actually hold the marble walls and the tessellated ceilings of that day. And it speaks of faith, faith that takes hold of the promises of God of entering into the heavenlies, if you please, and lays hold of the fact the Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. I know whom I believe. Persuaded he's able to keep that which he's deposited with me. Being confident of that very thing, he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it till the days of Jesus Christ. Now we come to the second group. Now, we're told, verse 29, "...there be three things which go well among beasts, and they're comely, and they're going." A lion, and the lion just goes straight ahead, doesn't detour. He's not afraid of the pussycats in the neighborhood. They don't frighten him. And Paul could say, "...none of these things move me." I think that the curse of the church is pussyfooting preachers and mealy-mouthed deacons. They are the ones. It said a Cromwell that he was a man without fear. They asked him how and why. He said, I've learned to, when you fear God, you have no man to fear. Stonewall Jackson got the name because one day as he was in battle 
and he was a wonderful Christian. General Cox looked over at him and said to his men, and they were ready to retreat. He said, look at General Jackson. He's standing like a stone wall. Man of courage, like a lion, the walk of a believer. And then we have a greyhound here, verse 31, a greyhound. And we're not talking about a bus now. This is not the greyhound bus. But the Christian is like a greyhound, but not a bus. That is, he has gird up his loins and to run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith. And then the other one that's mentioned in this verse is a he-goat, a mountain goat. He's a climber. He lives way up in the top of the mountains. May I say to you, this mountain goat reveals the fact that you and I are seated in the heavenlies. We ought to walk worthy of the high calling wherewith we're called. These are great. Now we come to chapter 31, and this is a chapter that I believe was written by Solomon because it says the words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. Now, I believe that Lemuel, because there's no king named that, and the very interesting thing is that you will find that Solomon's real name, the one that God gave him, was Jedidiah. And that means beloved of the Lord. Now, Lemuel means devoted to the Lord, and I think that this was probably the pet name that Bathsheba had for Solomon. I think around the palace you could have heard her calling Lemuel, and that was the pet name. I have a notion that every man listening to me today, you can go back and remember a pet name that your mother had for you, and you'd be almost ashamed to say what it was, but she had a pet name. And so I think this was that. And this is a mother's advice to her son. Make a great Mother's Day sermon. She says, what, my son? In other words, she says, oh, what can I say to you? And she needed to say something because, you see, she saw in this boy Solomon something of the characteristics of his father David. And she knew of the sin of David. I don't think it was her sin. It was David's sin. You remember in the first chapter of Matthew, it says that David begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. Her name's not even called. Why? Because it was David's sin. And God's making that very clear. And so she sees that in the life of Solomon, and it was there, of course. And so she gives him words of advice. And she says to him here, "'What, my son, what can I say to you? And what the son of my womb? You are my precious boy. And what the son of my vows? I dedicated you to God.'" Now give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. She knew David. And then verse 4, It's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink. And yet today we're told that every day in Washington, this was several years ago, there are 28 cocktail parties by government officials. And that doesn't make any difference whether they're Democrats or Republicans or what have you. They all have this in common. Now it says, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Oh, how tragic it is to have drinking men in high positions. Now, use this, she says, for medicine, give strong drink unto him that's ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. 
Let him drink and forget poverty and remember his misery no more. Open thy mouth for the dumb in the cause of all such as are appointed to destruction. Open thy mouth, judge righteously, plead the cause of the poor and needy. O Solomon, be honest and just and fair. Now, she tells him how to pick a wife. Say, this is good advice. This is God's advice. Who can find a virtuous woman? And old Matthew Henry, who, by the way, had a wonderful romance, and yet it is quite dry, and it's almost humorous to hear what he has to say. He says, you know, it is hard to find one. But virtuous here actually means a woman of character, a woman of strength, a woman of real ability. And notice what kind of wife she's to be. She's not to be a little shrinking violet. She's not to be, you know, like Whistler's mother sitting in a rocking chair. Somebody said that Whistler painted another picture of his mother because he came in one day and she was sitting on the floor. And he said to her, Mother, you're off your rocker. And may I say that I think most mothers today, you don't find them sitting in a rocking chair. They are busy. And this is the story of a busy mother. He says here, the heart of her husband doth safely trust in her. She's faithful, you see. So that he shall have no need of spoil. That means he'll not ask gain, because she'll not spend all of his money. She's a helpmeet. You see, God never intended woman to be a servant, a man. She's to be his partner and to be a real partner. The helpmeet, when God made Eve as a helpmeet, God made the other side of him. He was only half a man. He became a complete man with Eve. Now, verse 12, she'll do him good, not evil, all the days of her life. A helpmeet, you see. Now, she works. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. You don't mind working. And verse 14, she's like the merchant ships. She bringeth her food from afar. That means she's looking for bargains. She's willing to spend 25 cents worth of gas to drive across town to save 12 cents and buy an address or something else, you see. Now, verse 15 she riseth also while it's yet night, giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. I tell you, she knows how to keep house. She runs a tight ship. Wonderful mother. She considereth a field and buyeth it with the fruit of her hands. She planteth a vineyard. You know, I don't recall when I was growing up as a boy of ever getting up of a morning and finding my mother in bed. I thought about that just the other day. Now, later on, of course, is different when she became old. But when I was a boy growing up, I never got up of a morning and found her in bed. She was up. In fact, breakfast is generally ready at that time. Now, it says here that she considereth a field. She buy it with the fruit of her hands. She planteth a vineyard. She's a woman that runs the household. She's a woman of ability. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good, her cannel goeth not out by night. What man's work is from sun to sun, a woman's work is never done. That's the picture here. She layeth her hands to the spindle, her hands holdeth the distaff. She stretcheth out her hands to the poor, yet she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. She's a generous person, you see. How wonderful. She's not afraid of the snow for our household. Why? for a household of clothes with scarlet. My mother kept my pants patched when I was a boy. 
Now let me drop on down here. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. Verse 25. Now, will you notice? Verse 30. Favor is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. The first thing you'd look for, young man, is to look for a woman that is a Christian, Christian young man. And then I hope you get a good-looking one in the bargain. Nice to have them together like that. And it says, Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. That's the reason I guess they have Mother's Day, but there are a lot of mothers not worthy of the tribute given on Mother's Day. But what a wonderful picture this is. No wonder that this has been a book for young men. And it's good for young ladies also. And it's good for senior citizens. We go next time to the epistle to the Philippians. May God richly bless you, my beloved.